Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome along to our midweek meeting. And uh, it's a little bit uh, depleted due to weather, as you'd expect, and uh, a little bit of illness. But uh, anyway, we're here. The Lord is here. We've got our Bibles at the ready. So let's open to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. We'll read that one verse of Scripture, and then we'll get into our study for this evening. We're thinking about dispensationalism and uh, the subject is dispensationalism explained so uh, chapter 3 verse 6 of uh, Malachi and it says simply this for I am the Lord I change not therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed shall we pray father we thank thee for this evening we thank you for safe uh, travels to get to church tonight we thank you for each one who's uh, made it out in this uh, rather difficult day But we pray, Father, your blessing be upon us now as we gather around your word. We pray, Father, you'd help us to understand the uh, progression of revelation, to understand, Father, how times change, but you remain the same. And, uh, Father, we pray tonight that you'd bless us, encourage us, that you would thrill us with the scriptures, that we would be excited about what the word of God has to say, that you'd help us to rightly divide the word of truth, and, Lord, to see how scripture develops from Genesis to Revelation. So, Father, we ask tonight that you would be very near to us, that you'd uh, help us to give good attention, and help me, Lord, as I teach, to be clear, and, uh, Lord, to be able to uh, just to share precisely uh, that which you'd have me to say. And, uh, Lord, help me to say only that which you'd have me to say. Help me not to say anything distracting or anything foolish or sinful, for, Lord, we are mindful that in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. So, Father, we just pray you help us tonight and bless us. Bless us also as we come to our uh, time around thy throne of grace. Lord, we pray you'd meet with us there and that we would know your help and blessing in that place. And, uh, Lord, that you would bring to mind those who are standing in need of prayer tonight that we might intercede for them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) All right, now we're going to be thinking about dispensationalism. And uh, there's something you have to understand uh, if you attend this church, that this church is dispensational, it's premillennial, it's pre-tribulational, all right? So those are terms that we use quite frequently, Uh, dispensational, premillennial, pre-tribulational. What does that mean? Well, it means we're dispensational in our view of biblical history. Uh, We believe that there are certain dispensations that are set out along the way that we will see as we progress into this study. We're premillennial in our view of eschatology, of end times, believing that Jesus will come before his kingdom is established. And we're pre-tribulational in terms of our view of the rapture that we believe before the, before the millennium, there are seven years of tribulation. And before those seven years of tribulation, Jesus will take his church home. And uh, that's what those terms essentially uh, mean. Now, I know that for many people and many Christian people, those terms maybe don't mean a whole lot. But I hope over the next few weeks, and we're just going to be at this really for three or four weeks, uh, that you'll have a better understanding of what it means to be dispensational and why we approach the Scriptures in that way. And I hope if you see it and you understand it, it'll help ground you in the Word of God and give you a better understanding of your Bible as you read through it. Now, dispensationalism explains uh, the why of historical events in an organized way. It covers the scope of human history, 
from the beginning, from Genesis, all the way to the end, to Revelation. It explains why certain things happened in the past, why we are where we are today, and what will become of us in the future. And it shows us that there's a unifying principle that runs all the way through the Word of God that unites the Scriptures and ties everything together. Now, the Americans have a little saying. They say there are different strokes for different folks. Do you ever hear that saying? There's different strokes for different folks. In other words, you've got to treat people differently according to their personality, according to their age, according to their experience, or whatever uh, difference you might see there. And so while something will work with one particular person, it may not work so well with a different type of person. Now, to explain that, perhaps I think the best illustration I can give is of our own family. We have uh, four children. They all came from the same stock. They are, however, four very different people. Um, one child was an absolute whiz at mathematics. I mean, she was brilliant at maths, never bothered her. The other child, quite the opposite. The other child was most frustrating at maths. Uh, you would give her a sum and uh, she would just pull a figure out of the air. So you'd say, what's five times five? And she'd say, 473. And you'd say, what? Where'd you get that from? And then she'd go, 376. And you go, think about it. And she'd go, 221. And she'd just throw words or throw numbers out at you and uh, didn't seem to have any concept of calculation whatsoever. Uh, so the two of our children are very musical and the other two uh, cannot play a note. Um, so they're, they're different in that respect. When it came to disciplining them, the first child, and of course the first child is the one that the Lord allows you to practice on, uh, the first child uh, received a lot of physical discipline. Uh, she got her backside smacked quite a bit. It made virtually no difference at all. Okay, That's why she got smacked quite a bit, because no matter how often you smacked her, she still did the things that you told her not to do. Uh, and so it was water off a duck's back. So she often repeated the same behaviors and consequently received the same punishments. The second child was entirely different. If you told her that she was in danger of having her rear end warmed, she would have something equivalent to a childhood nervous breakdown. She'd begin crying immediately and trembling and would look like she was about to collapse into a puddle of water and uh, to such a degree that she got off a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, punishments that she probably deserved. But uh, she, you just looked at her and you thought you, you couldn't... She was like, uh, like that wee cat, you know, Puss in Boots. You know, we see the Shrek movies and you got Puss in Boots. Has the big eyes and looks at you. And that's how she looked. So she was hard work as far as, as, far as punishment goes. The third child was quite well behaved. And the last child rarely needed any discipline at all. So when caught... When caught doing something wrong, our eldest daughter, uh, well, she, her response was to lie her way out of trouble. She lied. That was her go-to response. She was like Boris Johnson. Uh, and so she just lied when she got into trouble. And, uh, and so she would just, you know, make up stories, any kind of story. It didn't matter um, how silly it was or how uh, inconceivable it was. She would tell you a lie. And you would explain to her, you know, if you tell me a lie, you're only going to get into more trouble. So she'd just carry on telling you more lies until she got into more trouble. The second daughter, she didn't do that at all. She confessed to everything. 
And if you asked her why she had done what she had did, what she did, she said, "Because I wanted to," which is a very hard to argue against, really. Uh, and so again, she told the truth, and very often she, as a consequence, managed to escape the punishment that her eldest sister uh, got handed out time and again. Um, when it came to schoolwork, the first child did whatever had to be done to get by, but no more than that. The second child rarely did what needed to be done at all, uh, had, a, had you know, no interest in any kind of academic work, didn't seem to be bothered at all about getting by, thought all of the teachers had it in for her. Whenever the school report came out, she had, she had, if you had read the line, uh, you know, must do better, she'd say, oh, that teacher hates me. And then uh, you'd read the next line and say, you know, Rachel hasn't tried in school. Oh, she doesn't like me. And so she always took it personal. But the problem was her, not the teacher's. And uh, she just couldn't be bothered working in school. The third child uh, worked very diligently and very hard at school and uh, was, was a very good student. And the fourth child uh, worked enthusiastically on the subjects he liked, but less carefully about the subjects he disliked. So if he liked the subject, he threw his all into it. If he didn't like it, he just wasn't really that interested. The eldest child liked creative writing. She liked writing essays. The second child liked nothing better than art. She was happy when she was up to her ears in paint or glue or glitter or something of that nature. The third child loved science and the fourth child loved drama and music. Now here's what I learned as a father. Children are different. Each child is different from the other and they need to be handled differently according to their temperament, according to their ability, according to their age. And it would be a great parental mistake to treat all of your children exactly uh, the same. So by necessity, we deal differently with a nine-year-old uh, child than we do with an 18-year-old. I can imagine if Mark and Kathy told Jonathan to go and sit on the naughty step, uh, he would probably feel more than a little humiliated at this stage in his life and say to them, you know, I don't think that's really appropriate. Uh, but so you've got to think of a different, you've got to think of a different punishment for an older teenager than you do for a little girl. Uh, and for that matter, sometimes you've got to think of a different punishment for a little girl than you would perhaps for a little boy. Or with a, you have a different approach to a rebellious child as opposed to a submissive child. And God does much the same thing. He's done much the same thing over time. And he's dealt with different people in different ways. And, uh, and uh, understanding his ways of dealing with those people will not only allow you to better understand your Bible, but it will also open your understanding to the ongoing program of God as it unfolds through the course of human history. Now, before we see how God practiced different strokes for different folks, as it were, I want you to understand a necessary caveat. And that is that no matter what changes, God remains the same. Okay? No matter what changes, God remains the same. So we opened our study this evening by reading Malachi 3 and verse 6, where we find a blanket statement of truth. For I am the Lord, I change not. We call this the immutability of God. God is unchanging. He is always the same. No matter what happens, whether the country is flooded or whether we're bathed in sunshine or whether we're up to our necks in snow or we're being blown off the island, God remains the same every single day. He's always the same. He never changes. But you and I, 
and indeed our society is always changing. I remember when I was a very young pastor and I was preaching one particular Sunday uh, and I just, uh, I, I think I just overstepped the line really when I was preaching. <coughs> and I talked about, no, you know you're not there that uh, they run a race, one all, but only one wins the prize. And uh, I remember getting sort of like really heated up, you know, just really fervent about this message. And in the midst of it, I said something silly. And I said, you know, it says only one will win the prize. And I said, I intend to be that one. (laughs) Now, of course, that was a complete misinterpretation of that passage. That's not what Paul was saying. He wasn't saying that just one person will win the prize. He was using an illustration to encourage all of us to try and win the prize. Uh, But then I went on and talked about people who compromised. And I would say, I would talk about how they would compromise on this standard or that standard or this uh, Bible translations or, or whatever it was. And, and then in the midst of this particular uh, sermon, again, I was just fired up. I was really going for it. I said, I said that. And some of you say to me, Pastor, you need to mellow. And I looked at them and I said, you know what? I will never mellow. Not ever. <laughs> Fast forward about 25, 30 years. I'm invited back to that church to do an anniversary service. I preached a sermon. I can't remember what the sermon was about now, but I preached a sermon. At the end of the sermon, one of the ladies who was present during that sermon, the first sermon, came up to me and said, Pastor, and I said, yes. She says, you mellowed. (laughs) And she saw the difference uh, because I had mellowed. I had changed. I was not the same fervent, zealous young pastor that I was breathing fire from the pulpit. Uh, I certainly had grown uh, somewhat, I hope. So we change. We change physically. We change emotionally. We change uh, spiritually. We change in, in many ways mentally. In the words of Henry Francis Light's famous hymn, Swift to its close ebbs life's, life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim. Its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou that changest not abide with me. So God is always God. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 29. God is always God, but man is ever changing. God never changes, no matter what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15, and let's look at verse 29. And it says, And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. And the word repent, of course, means to think again. So God never changes his mind. You and I change our minds all the time. Uh, you know, we're going to do something and then we repent. We think differently. We say, oh, you know what? I'm not going to do that or I'll do it differently. It's not the way I was going to go now. But God never does that. God never repents. He never changes his mind. He, he's always outworking his program for the ages with its uh, purpose and being rooted in his glory and in the glory of his son. So though he does not change his mind, as we shall see, God may change his method. Now, hear what I said? He doesn't always change his mind. 
but sometimes he changes his method. And now that doesn't change the person of God, the character of God, or the essence of God. God is still unchanging. Uh, He's still going to the same station in the end. Look at Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Psalm 102 and verse 12. It says, But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Verse 25 of that psalm, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, they are going to decay, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. God is the same. Man changes, but God is the same. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. You know this verse well. It speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. But Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. It says simply this, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. So the Lord is a constant in our lives. You know, we change, we grow old, we, um, you know, it's kind of interesting how you relate uh, to your grandchildren compared to your children. I sometimes think if I had uh, perhaps been as good a father as I am a grandfather, um, things might have been different, I don't know. Uh, maybe my children would have been worse because <laughs> they'd been spoiled. But, uh, you know, my kids look at me relating to my grandchildren and they, and they say, You'd never let us off with that. Oh, you'd never let us eat that. Oh, you'd never let us do that. And you know, the grandkids come and they say, Grand, can we do this? And I said, Of course we can do it. And we're going to do it. <laughs> Whereas my, my kids, our kids were small, they'd say, Daddy, can we do this? And I'd What do you think I am? Made of money? <laughs> you know, a completely different response. So there's a change. There's a change. But the Lord Jesus remains the one constant, He never changes. Just as you and I go to him today and find him there on his throne and we are ministered unto by his grace, previous Christians and and generations long before ours found the same Savior at the same place. And he gave out the same gifts. In James chapter 1 and verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no, listen to what it says, with whom there is no variableness. You know, do you ever, ever hear somebody say, oh, go and see so-and-so and, and see if you can do such and such? And they'll say, well, I'll see what mood he's in. That's variableness. You know, I had a boss like that. You could go into him one day and he'd be Mr. Happy, and you'd go into him the next day and he'd be Adolf Hitler. It just depended on what day you caught him and what mood you caught him in. Uh, and so there was variableness with him. But with God, there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, says James. He has set his course He's going to complete what he has set out to do, and he's not changing for anything. So when we speak about God governing the affairs of men in different ways at different times, 
Understand, we're not saying that God himself is changing in his nature, in his essence, that he's somehow uh, transitory, uh, that he's a developing personality. No, he's the rock, and rocks, by definition, largely don't change. Their character is immovable, permanent, and unchanging, and God is all of those. Now, keep that thought in mind, and then I want you to see something. We're going to think about our journey as a race. And I want to look at the timeline of history. The human race, if we believe the Bible, is about 6,000 years old. Now, God is not only immutable, uh, and and one of his other attributes is that he is eternal. He dwells outside of time. Now, you and I can't always get our heads around this because we have a beginning and we have an end. We have a birth and we have a death, and then we enter into eternity. But God has neither birth nor death. Uh, He is eternal. He exists outside of time. And so looking through the timeline of history, God was there at the beginning of our creation, and he will get us to his stated goal by the end of it all. And all of that was predetermined in eternity past. God knew from the beginning where he was going. Now, here's the thing I want you to see, that the human race is ever developing, but God's dealings with us uh, as, as they do uh, changed. Now, God, in other words, God didn't reveal everything uh, all at once, everything we needed to know. So you go back to the beginning and you read about Adam. Adam's the first man. Did God tell Adam everything all at once? Did Adam know all about the church? Well, did he? No. He didn't know anything about the church. He didn't know anything very much really at all in comparison to ourselves. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, rather the revelation unto him was gradual and it was progressive. Look in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. I want you to see that even with the disciples, the Lord didn't reveal everything all at once. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 17. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 17. And here's what the Lord says. Verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. So here's what the Lord is telling them. He's telling them that he is revealing things, has revealed things unto them that others did not receive, that they had no knowledge of, including Adam. Uh, But likewise, there comes a point where he says to them, you know, there's other things I would like to tell you, but you're not ready to receive them right now. That's a paraphrase. And he says, there's things that I I could tell you, but you don't need to know it right now. So a lot of times God was operating on a need-to-know basis, all right? Uh, He dealt with people as they needed to know things. And so history was ever a work in progress. Look at John chapter 16 and verse 12 to make that point that they didn't know everything. Chapter 16 and verse 12. So they didn't always understand everything. They weren't always uh, told everything. I think I, oh, I looked at the wrong verse. John chapter 16. Look, I couldn't understand why I couldn't see my verse there. I was in the wrong, wrong book. 
Uh, John chapter 16, verse 12. So the Lord says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you unto all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you <coughs> things to come. Uh, he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Uh, all things the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. So there were things that were yet to be shown unto them, particularly things uh, to come. So they weren't altogether familiar with everything all at once. Some things would be revealed later. Understand, Paul has to come along. Uh, he's going to have certain revelations that these apostles didn't have. He's going to have an understanding of certain scriptures, which Paul uh, say, or Peter says of those scriptures that sometimes they were hard to be understood. Um, so Paul's going to know some things that Peter didn't know, know some things that John didn't know, know some things that uh, Matthew didn't know. It's progressive along the way. Now, here's the, here's the fact of the matter. Peter, James, and Paul all died before John, the Apostle John, get this, wrote his gospel, wrote his epistles, and wrote the book of Revelation. Think about that. Peter, James, and Paul all died before the Apostle John wrote his gospel, his epistles, and his revelation. Now, what did the Lord say to the disciples there? He says, there's, there's things that, you don't, that I could say unto you, but you're, you can't bear them now. He says, but the Spirit is coming, and he will show you things to come. So they didn't have an idea about things to come. John was going to be the one who was shown things to come. John wrote the book of Revelation. When you think about it, uh, neither Peter nor Paul ever preached from John 3.16. Isn't that interesting? We think of that as the most famous verse of the New Testament, but neither Peter nor John, or Peter nor Paul, held that verse in their hand because in their lifetime that verse was not written, that revelation was not given in that form, and so they had uh, they had a smaller Bible than we have. So there are many things that you know from these books that were revealed to John, but un unavailable to those three men and to others. And uh, all, of, all, of the, uh, all of these men died martyrs' deaths without ever reading the John's writings, which raises this question, how much Bible, and by extension, how much of the revelation of God did the saints of old have in their lifetime? You think about it, how much Bible did Adam have? You can answer the question. I'll throw it out there. How much Bible did he have? He had no Bible. Adam didn't write the book of Genesis. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So Adam didn't have a Bible, not any Bible of any description, not even a single page of the Bible. He simply walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, and on a personal level, God revealed things to him one-on-one. -on -one. You think about Abraham. How much Bible did Abraham have? You're all looking like, oh no. How much Bible? Think about it. Who comes first? Who wrote the first five books? Moses. Who comes first, Abraham or Moses? Abraham. 
So how much Bible does Abraham have? He has no Bible. Abraham had no Bible at all. But at different times, God would appear unto him and speak to him directly. And uh, you can see that in Genesis 17, 1, Genesis 18, 1, and so on. Moses, in the end, has five books uh, of the Bible, those five books that he was inspired to write, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, but that was all he had. David, King David had the same five books that Moses wrote, as well as Joshua and Judges. And then, of course, he had the Psalms that he himself was inspired to write. David never had Kings and Chronicles. Why did he never have Kings and Chronicles? Because he was one of the kings being chronicled. <laughs> so he didn't write Kings or Chronicles. Uh, he wasn't there to record those things. And so in that respect, he didn't have those books in his Bible. Ezra had most, if not all, of the Old Testament. So what I'm saying to you is, as you look through the timeline of history, the Bible and the revelation of God is developing, and men are increasing their knowledge of God as they proceed. Uh, you know, Jesus and his disciples, what Bible did they have? How much Bible did they have? Just the Old Testament. That's all they had. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels about Jesus' life. They weren't written during Jesus' life. They were written after Jesus had died, was buried, and rose again, and ascended into heaven. So they didn't have the Gospels. They certainly didn't have any of the epistles. And so they referred to the Old Testament. Uh, Paul, Paul's Bible contained the Old Testament books, and most of the New Testament books, which he was writing, but not all of, the, all of the New Testament books. John had all the Old Testament books, all the New Testament books being the last inspired writer to record Scripture. And then, of course, he himself writes Revelation around 95 AD, about 30 years after Paul died. Now, given that many of those believers from the past had a much reduced Bible to our own, we might well expect that their experience of God was in some way different from our experience of God. You understand? We have a much fuller revelation than those patriarchs and saints in the Old Testament, even New Testament saints. So you think about this. After creation, the first great event in Scripture is the fall. Before the fall, there was no death, there was no decay, there was no disease, there was no disruption. Adam and Eve lived on a perfect planet and a, a paradise on earth. Everything was provided for them. Everything was theirs to enjoy until what? Until Adam sinned. And then things changed. Now let's look at Genesis for a moment. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. And you'll see how this change was effected. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. It says in verse 25 of Adam and Eve that they were both naked, <clears throat> the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now let's go to uh, post-fall in verse 7 of chapter 3. It says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Isn't that interesting? One minute they're unashamed of being naked. There's no problem. The next minute, they are completely ashamed of being discovered naked, and they endeavor to cover themselves up. Uh, by the way, that's a very interesting challenge to atheists. Have you ever asked them why do humans wear clothes? If humans are animals, as they suggest we are, 
we're the only animals in the world that make clothes and wear clothes. And you have to ask them, well, why do we wear clothes? Tell me in the evolutionary development of mankind, when and why, what was the purpose of clothing? And the reason we wear clothes is because of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. We're not animals. We're made in the image of God. And we reflect these events from the earliest of times. But here's Adam and Eve, and they suddenly experience what we would call self-awareness. They're embarrassed by their nakedness. They're ashamed of their nakedness. You see, between those two chapters, between chapter 2 and verse 25 and chapter 3 and verse 7, something changed. And by the time you get to the end of that chapter, God himself is clothing them. He didn't clothe them to begin with. Now think about that. When they were first created, God did not clothe them. But after they fell, God clothed them. He did something different with them before the fall than he did after the fall. Then the next big event in the Bible is the flood. Now, the world of Noah's day was a very different world to the world of our day. It was a world of dinosaurs. It was a world of great plants, of great trees, of curious animals that we don't know anything very much about and have, such, have long since become extinct. And uh, you go to the Natural Museum Histories of the World and you can see uh, some of these, the roots of these great plants and you can see uh, some of the bones of dinosaurs and what have you. Uh, and before the flood, man enjoyed a purely vegetarian diet. But after the flood, he becomes a carnivore. Let's look in chapter 1 of Genesis. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> chapter 1 of Genesis and verse 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree which is the, fr and in the, which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat or for food. Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 9. See what happens after the flood. After the flood, Noah emerges from the ark. <clears throat> And notice what it says in verses, uh, verse uh, 2 and 3. It says, The Lord said unto them, be, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. So before the flood, man completely a vegetarian. After the flood, God says, eat whatever you want to eat. If it moves, eat it. I like that. Okay. <laughs> that means you can eat anything. Before the flood, you can eat anything you wanted to eat. If it moved, eat it. That's a change. Something happened. Something different took place. Before the flood, murderers were banished but not put to death. After the flood, capital punishment was instituted, exercised by man with the authority of God, and it becomes the standard. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 15. Here we get to the tail end of the account of Cain's murder of Abel. And it says, verse 15, The Lord said, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. 
And the Lord uh, set a mark upon Cain, lest any man, any finding him, should kill him. So God banished Cain, but he didn't put Cain to death. Now you go back to Genesis and chapter 9 and verse 6. Cain, Noah emerges from the ark into a whole new world. Things have changed. Verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. You see what I'm saying to you? That whilst God is unchanging, society is ever-changing. Man's experience is changing. History is changing. You think about the Tower of Babel. That's the next big event that comes along in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1. It says the whole earth was of one language and one speech. But by the time you get to chapter, or verses 7 through 9, things have changed. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language. They may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build a city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So before, before Babel, everybody was concentrated in one central place. They were building this tower under the heavens. They spoke, all of them, with the same tongue. They spoke the same language. It was a global language, so to speak, or a universal language would be a better uh, way of stating it. It was a universal language. But after Babel, they spoke in different tongues, and they separated into their language groups and went to different parts of the world. Things changed. Things changed. Then you come to Abraham. Prior to the appearance of Abraham on the page of Scripture, mankind was just one people group. It was just mankind. It was the Gentiles. Everybody was a Gentile before Abraham came along. Abraham comes along, and he is given certain promises. He's given certain covenants. He is circumcised, and all his family are circumcised as a sign of that covenant. And suddenly, God introduces into the world another people group, the Jews. So now one group has separated off from everybody else in the world. So now you have the Gentiles over here and this little group of people that have become Jews which leads us to Moses. The next great event in Scripture is the coming of Moses, the exodus out of Egypt, and the giving of the law. So before Moses comes along, there are no formal commandments from God. Nobody said, what are the Ten Commandments? Because there wasn't any commandments. There wasn't any law written down. You couldn't say, thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on. But by the time Moses is done, there are 613 commandments given to Israel in the wilderness, uh, commandments which cover, covered their religious, moral, and civil lives. Uh, here, among those commandments was the Sabbath day laws that pertain to Israel, dietary laws that pertain to the Jewish people, laws about feast days and offerings. Now, here's the question, all right? You go into the Old Testament, into those law books, into Leviticus and the other books, and you have laws about diet. No, you can't eat pork. You can't eat anything off a pig. Well, if you like your bacon, that's bad news, isn't it? Huh? And so, you know, you, you say, well, what, what happened? We can't eat bacon. We are eating bacon. You know, I was just sharing last night with some friends that uh, in Brighton, I had a friend who pastored in Brighton. He was reaching out to the Jewish people. 
And he said, you always knew when the rabbi came into the supermarket because there was a wacky race of trolleys going back to the freezers to throw the bacon back into the fridges. The Jews don't eat bacon. But you and I eat bacon. So are we in sin? Or, or were they mistaken? Well, they're not mistaken. And we're not in sin. It's a different time period. And God is dealing with people in a different way. Suddenly you're reading now about the tabernacle, about its pattern, about its furnishings. A priesthood is born. You have the office of the high priest. A position of national importance develops. Uh, the high priest must, de- must enter the Holy of Holies once a year in the Day of Atonement. And he cleanses the whole nation by that means. You see how things were so different from Abraham's time. None of that happened in Abraham's time. Abraham didn't have a high priest. Abraham didn't have a tabernacle. Abraham wasn't conditioned by these dietary laws and other there's such things. So now when you and I are living in a New Testament era, those feast days, those Sabbaths that were observed before are gone. Those dietary laws that were so meticulously observed before have been abolished. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4. <coughs> and let's begin reading in verse, verses 3 through 5. The, the, the Lord speaks, Paul speaks about uh, those who are forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. So you think about uh, Peter, you remember that account where Peter sees the blanket coming down from heaven with all the different animals and all the different creatures on it, and the Lord says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat, and he says, Lord, I'll never not touch that stuff, I've never eaten anything that was unclean, common or unclean, and then the Lord rebukes him, and he's showing him that the gospel must go out now to the Gentiles, uh, and Gentiles are not subject to dietary laws, Gentiles eat everything and anything. Now, we eat certain things uh, that other Gentiles don't eat, and other Gentiles eat things that we don't eat. So, you know, you go into some cultures and people are eating locusts. You go into the Caribbean, they eat locusts regularly. I mean, that's children eat locusts like our children eat sweets. But I would imagine if you give our children a locust or two, or a bag of locusts, and say, there's a bag of locusts for you, have a happy Christmas. They're not going to be very impressed, are they? Uh, But the point is that Gentiles eat all this stuff. They eat all kinds of things. Snails and locusts and prawns and uh, and all kinds of stuff that, that, that Jews generally don't eat. Something changed. Something different is going on. One minute God is saying, don't eat these things. And the next minute he's saying, eat anything you want to eat as long as you thank me for it. Well, what happened here? What's going on? That brings us up to the time of the cross. The Lord Jesus comes into the world. 
as the Messiah of Israel promised from the beginning. He is a scene in the covenant that is made with Abraham, typified in the law of Moses. He dies as the Lamb of God upon the cross at Calvary. He's buried. He's risen again. Now what? Now what? The Sabbath day worship that was so important previously is replaced. And Sunday, the first day of the week, becomes the day of worship. So for the better part of your Bible, people are worshiping on Saturday, Friday night, Saturday morning. Suddenly, People are worshiping on the first day of the week to mark the resurrection. Something changed. Something has happened. Before Pentecost, the people went to the temple of God to worship. After Pentecost, they discover they are the temple of God. We are the temple made without hands. We don't go to a temple anymore. And a third people group emerges. Now you have the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church of God, a distinct group that is, is a mix of both Jews and Gentiles who have trusted Christ as their Savior. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. Notice what Paul says. Give no offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. So he separates the church of God from the Gentiles. He does that also in Thessalonians, by the way. And he separates the church of God from the Jews. So Jews are different from Gentiles. Gentiles are different from Jews. And the church of God are different from Jews and Gentiles. We're, not, we're a, a class all of our own. So we now go on further in our Bible and in the timeline of history. And there are future events that are prophetically outstanding, which again will lead to certain changes coming into place. There's the rapture of the church. The church is removed from the earth. And once again, God fused the earth as divided in two primarily, Jew and Gentile. Because remember, it was Jew, Gentile, church of God. Church of God's God. Who's left? Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. And God's focus is again upon Israel. All of a sudden, the temple arises from the ashes of Israelite history and desolation. The Spirit, once again, is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is, is with his people rather than in his people. Remember at Pentecost, uh, a, a new thing happened and the Spirit came in and dwelt the people of God, whereas before they were only with the people of God uh, for certain tasks. Now they're in the people of God. And his restraining power is set aside during the rapture or during the tribulation period to allow Satan to have free reign and the Antichrist to emerge. Then we come to the coming of the Lord and with him the arrival of the kingdom of age. Now here's the thing. When you get into the kingdom age, guess what happens? Everything changes. Now let me ask you a question. Has God changed throughout all these ages? Has God changed? No. God's exactly the same. He's the same God that you find in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's the same God. But things have changed in his dealings with men upon earth. And you get to the kingdom age and suddenly you have the glorified Christ physically seated upon his throne. 
in Jerusalem. And the animal kingdom is no longer affected by the curse. Now the wolf lies down with the lamb. Now a child can go and play in a pit of serpents or, or put his hand into a cockatrice den. You know, he can touch a scorpion and not be stung. It's a different world. There's different, it's a different environment. Uh, you know, uh, people are living longer. If someone dies at the age of 100 during the millennium, it's deemed to be a premature death. You know, somebody dies at the age of 100 now, we say, didn't he have a good innings? The king sends you a message to congratulate you on making it to 100. In the millennium, if you die at 100, everybody will mourn you as a child dying. Different circumstances, different environment. You know, the hills are made low, valleys are exalted. Uh, not least of all around Jerusalem, suddenly this great mound uh, appears, this great plateau appears, where now there are hills and valleys all around the city of Jerusalem. You see them on the news every night. If you're watching the news and the reporting from Israel, and particularly from the BBC, I'm not sure where she's standing exactly, but the BBC reporter is standing with Jerusalem behind her, and you can see it going up the hill. Well, when the Lord comes, those, those valleys are going to be exalted. Those mountains are going to be made low. It's going to be one flat plain that is exalted, that is elevated over the city of Jerusalem down beneath. And a temple will stand there from which Christ will rule and reign. And no longer will men be invited as they are now to know the Lord. No longer will we appeal for people to know Christ because in the millennial age, everybody shall know the Lord. And there'll be no question about his identity or his sovereignty. You see, we walk through the timeline of history and what do we find? We find the same God but differences in human experience concerning him and his ways. There's a different degree of revelation. There's different kinds of responsibilities. There's differences in the animal kingdom. There's differences in dietary uh, needs. There's differences in holy days, differences in the manifestation of God. Now, today, we, come, we don't come to churches that Jews did uh, with a sacrificial, sacrificial lamb, uh, but we don't worry about eating pork or shellfish or strawberries. We don't worry about any of those things. You know, uh, whereas they would put a man to death if he, if, he was, if he broke the Sabbath, my goodness, where would the church be if we put people to death for not showing up in services on Sunday? <laughs> We don't do that, do we? We're treating people differently. Why? Because we're in what we call a different dispensation. A different way in which God is administrating his rule over man and over the earth. We don't have a focal point like a temple. We don't look to a priest to make our approach onto God. You know, even those, even those who deny dispensational theology have to agree that they're living in a completely different time today on a, under a completely different set of rules than their Old Testament counterpart. For example, if the people who deny dispensationalism, people who we will call uh, covenant theologians, we'll talk about what that means in a week or two, but even they have to admit 
that things are not done the same forever. You know, they talk about a, a covenant of works and, and a covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace starts right after Adam sins and it continues right to the end of time. And they have this continuum. But wait a minute. Presbyterian churches, which would hold to that view that there's no change, that God remains the same in the administration of his office throughout the entire entirety of human history, as far as I know, Presbyterians don't circumcise babies. Last I looked. But the Jews circumcised babies. Presbyterians baptize babies, or christen babies to use the proper term. But they christen both boys and girls. Jews only circ- circumcise boys. So there's a difference between if you've got a covenant of grace that bridges both Old Testament and New Testament, there's a difference between how things are practiced today and how things were practiced yesterday in the Old Testament that covenant theologians seem to be incapable of recognizing. And that's where dispensational theology helps. You see, it helps us to decipher between one age and another age, between God saying to one group of people, you can't eat pork, And another group of people, you can eat whatever you want to eat as long as you give thanks for it. You see, we'll find out why God operates with one group one way and another group another way at a different point in history. A dispensationalist is not someone who comes along and imposes a theology upon the Bible, but one who lets the Bible speak. Who believes that the Bible is written uh, as, the, as, the, and as inspired as the revelation of God, but also that that revelation was, as we've seen tonight, progressive, that man's understanding of God was developing with the passing of the ages. And though God was always the same, he employed different strategies at different times to accomplish his redemptive purposes. See, it's different strokes for different folks. It's kind of interesting. Every family I've been around has the same arguments. They always, they always have the eldest child syndrome. The eldest child always feels hard done by. Remember, that's the child you get to practice on. Sorry about that, Rebecca. But you get to practice on the eldest child. Then the eldest child or the other children will look at one of the other, one of their siblings to say, well, there's the favorite child. There's the golden child. It's a golden child in every family. What's happening? What's going on here? Has this golden child got different parents from the first child? No, it's the same parents. Do the parents have different goals for the golden child than they do for the first child? No, they've got the same goals. They want all their children to do equally well. So why do they treat one one way and the other another way? Well, it's got to do with age. It's got to do with experience. It's got to do with practice. It's got to do with knowledge. You know, you, you, you build up your philosophy of parenting as you go along, and you treat these children, although they all belong to your family, although you love them all equally, although you want them all to do super good in life, you do make differences between them as they come along because you are recognizing that it is different strokes for different folks. Now, God, and this is probably a poor illustration, But in some sense, God, as a perfect father, does that. Not that he's experimenting with men, but that he is dealing with them as they progress, as human history progresses, 
and then his method changes, his administration changes, but his purpose ultimately to get glory, get his glory out of mankind and to see his son glorified in the end remains exactly the same. And that is why we need a system of theology that helps us to understand that. And that system of theology, I am convinced, is best answered by dispensationalism. Well, we'll leave it there for this evening. And I hope that made sense to you all. (laughs) Clear as mud. Next week.